Welcome to Shakespeare and How, Episode 10, Henry VI, Part 1. Now, I really should have thought of something to say. I'm Michael. <laughs> I'm Michael. And um, I'm Sophie, an, an abandoned friend, or a friend who abandons other friends. Ah, so you're making excuses for Greg, are you? Oh, no, I'm making a reference to um, much, 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 much later into the play. Oh, that is a tease. Anyway. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, why are we doing Henry VI Part 1 after Henry VI Part 2 and 3? Because just like George Lucas, Shakespeare got to the first part last. Was this a good idea? Does this live up to the previous ones? Let us go into it. Sophie, I was going to call you Shakespeare. Sophie, uh, what is your relationship to Henry VI, part one? Uh, I have read part two and three, and beyond that, there I have had no relationship with Henry beforehand. Ah, but what about that masterpiece of East-West cultural dialogue, Requiem of the Rose King? Ah, shit. Okay, uh, well, the Requiem of the Rose King. Like, it doesn't really cover part one. It doesn't it cover covers, part one. It, it does really latch on to Joan of Arc. It, yeah, I guess it does latch on to Joan of Arc, um, but she's already dead. Like, so it's very much after the her burning or her execution, and then she just keeps showing up in front of Richard III as a ghost. And, um, yeah, no, I, to be honest, I'd kind of forgotten about that. Part. My relationship with this play is that as someone who has heard of Shakespeare, has an interest in Shakespeare, you hear various things about Shakespeare, like, for instance, that one of his characters was Joan of Arc. Uh, you've never, I've never read this play, but apparently this is the play where Joan of Arc is one of the characters. And in, in hindsight, you hear a lot of things about Henry VI, part one, two, and three, and each one of them. Each one of them has at least one sort of killer character. This one, it's Joan of Arc. For Henry VI, part two, it's Jack Cade, the working class rebel leader. Part three, it's Margaret, the warrior queen. But you, even at this stage, he does have something in there in each of these plays. Even people who don't like these plays can agree that, oh, there's something. There's some central thing that can grab your attention in these. I mean, in part two, I wouldn't go so far as... um call the rebel commoner in part two as a killer character just because he shows up so late and then he just leaves so abruptly it, literally one act he is introduced a little bit in act three then he survives with a single act and then just gets gets murdered in a garden after you know being starved to death um from running away so much and just mm, yeah, I wouldn't go so far as call him like uh, I would not really call him like a killer character. It's just more of a oh, oh, he was annoying. Was he really need? Was he near really necessary? Do you think that Joan of Arc wins her top billing in this play? Mm, not really. She could have, but not really. The French in this play do really operate just like Team Rocket in the Pokemon cartoons. 
They are a villain who is sort of intimidating, but they can be reliably beaten every time. Yeah, they have a they have a moment of victory, and then the 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 good guys with quotation marks show up, and then they just get trounced immediately. Is it's it's like oh, I thought they were meant to be intimidating. I thought they were meant to be, but no, no, we no. We can get into this later on, but I, I think in the first one, in the first Henry the Sixth one, I was reading. I mentioned that there was someone who was pointing out that uh, Shakespeare was being innovative because a lot of these history plays that are about the English fighting foreigners and in those plays it was very xenophobic. We mighty English beating the foreigners, but Shakespeare changed it by making his plays about fight English fighting English people in civil wars. In this play, he really does go back to that older tradition of xenophobic, let's fight those bloody foreigners, those stupid Team Rocket style foreigners. Yeah. Yeah. Not a, not a fan. Very, it's very childish. Shall we get into the heat? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's get into Henry the Sixth, Part One. Henry the Sixth, Part One, Act One. Henry the Fifth got control of a lot of France, but now he's dead and his son's a child. And already the French are taking liberties, taking back France, and even at home the English nobles are bickering among each other. And even the terror of the French, their greatest warrior in France, has been taken prisoner by the French, that is Talbot, Talbot, mighty warrior. But the Englishman Salisbury marshals his forces, takes a bit of France back, frees Talbot, Ah, but the French have on their side the magical warrior maiden, Joan of Arc. Will the French manage to beat back the English? That is the tale of this play. I think that perhaps the the most important thing about this uh, first act is the fact that we are introduced to Joan of Arc. Joan of Arc. How did you feel about her character? (laughs) Um, so... I won't go into overall yet, um, but I in I thought this was actually a really good introduction, and um, it's nice to know that um, even before, even after Margaret, because Margaret was a very strong female character, you get Joan La Pucelle of Slash of Arc, at least at first, almost unequivocally good. I do mean almost in the sense that, you know, she's French, so she's bound to be a little sus to the audience. But, you know, it's it's like, oh, yes, I was a shepherdess, but I was told by God to come aid you. And here I am. And look at, and I've turned pretty for some reason, because that's very important to be, you know, standing beside you and leading France towards victory. So that was, I was like, you don't have to be pretty to be good, but mm, whatever. It doesn't um, hurt. It doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt. And like fucking, yeah, I liked her at first. And then I slowly felt disappointed in, in William for letting her down like that. But there is, I mean, you say she's presented quite well. There is a quite an, I'd say, almost an out of place moment where she says, I am prepared. Here is my keen-edged sword decked with fine flower de luces on each side. And then she, as an aside, says, The witch at Touraine in St. Catherine's churchyard, out of a great deal of iron I chose forth. 
So she's beginning by saying, here is a magnificent sword I have, which is actually just a, a lump of iron. So it's almost like even at this point, Shakespeare is undermining her. It's like, oh, I'm a con man. I'm conning these people. Oh, I thought um that I was just literally, it, even if it is just a sword, like um she has dressed up in just a sword, but, you know, I thought that was kind of reflecting her. Like, I, she is just but iron. She is just but, you know, a commoner. But having dressed herself up with so many fleur-de-lis, she has become, you know, basically exceeding of her sex. And so, yes, that, that might be, yes, that probably might be a good way to, to, to frame this. It's, uh, yes, a, a way to, yes, in my edition, they do say that there are no markings of asides in the original text. So they view that, so the editors of this apparently view this as a secret thing she is saying that will undermine her to the audience. But, you know, your argument is just as good, which is that she is saying, just like a common person, I have risen to great things, like this lump of metal. And she does have this rather, she has this weird dominant submissive thing with King Charles. Did you notice that? Oh, yeah, no, 100%. That was, that was just make made me go, hmm. Did you have to do that? But it sort of makes sense because she is but a commoner, so she can't be too dominating or else, you know, the people around the, the Dauphin might straight up go, mm, let's kill her off. She's, she doesn't know her place. While also she is trying to be semi-equal to the Dauphin. So being dominant enough to be equal but submissive enough to still be a subject is probably the balance that she's trying to take Uh, i mean is she being submissive to him in any way because i feel that you know when she beats him in battle like it's like well if you want to be uh if you want to be a fighter in my army joan you must beat me in battle says the dauphin and he says and you know they fight she beats him and he says, stay, stay thy hands, thou art an Amazon. He's like, whosoe'er helps thee, tis thou that must help me. Impatiently I burn with thy desire. My heart and hands, thou hast at once subdued, excellent Pousseur. If thy name be so, let me thy servant and not sovereign be. Tis the French Dauphin sueth to thee thus. Now that is, in a different context, that these lines are very, very, um, yeah, as, as I yeah. said, submissive. But, um, so, in the edition, I do quote, I do say edition with quotation marks implied because I'm just reading it off of opensourceshakespeare.org. Um, you know, stay, stay thy hands, thou art an Amazon and highest with the sword of Deborah. And then she immediately replies, Christ's mother helps me, else I were too weak. She's almost being Japanese here. Like, it's like, oh, no, 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 no. It's like, if it weren't for someone else, I wouldn't have beaten you. And being especially, it's like, oh, no, without, you know, Mother Mary's assistance, I would not have, you know, done this. Then he goes, you know, thy servant and not sovereign be, tis the French Dauphin sueth to thee thus. And she replies, I must not yield to any rights of love for my profession sacred from above. When I have chased all thy foes from hence, then will I think upon a recompense. 
Meantime, look gracious on thy prostrate thrall. Please step on me, mummy. <laughs> God damn it. We should I... be beyond that culturally, but no. But yeah. But I mean, like, reading this, it. I mean, for, let's say from the perspective of uh, an English audience, I do feel that this is definitely meant to be, ah, look at the effeminate French king letting a woman lead him. Because, you know, in, one, in an article that was by Gutierrez, N.A. Gutierrez, I don't know how to pronounce that, called Gender and Value in Henry VI, Part One: The Role of Joan de Pucelle. But they note that this is an inversion of how these warrior woman narratives usually go. There's usually an Amazon, you know, warrior woman, fight, 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 she fights all day, and then she meets the man who will conquer her and put her in her place. That's usually how these stories go. But in this one, the French king, this man, gets put in his place by a woman. So I, I think that... Uh, like nowadays, we reading this. Oh yes, you slay girl. That's what we think. I'd say that this scene is mainly just meant to make the French seem like uh, effeminate, um, worthless people. Yeah. But that is the beauty of Shakespeare. It can be reinterpreted every year. I mean, I I am very much in favor of reinterpret uh, reinterpretations, just because it's more fun that way. Especially, you know for plays because we have the playwright's text and it's just up to the director the stage um oh wait who's not not the stage director um who stage designer. Up the, yeah the, the yeah the stage designers the actors themselves like it's all it's a collaborative work and having being able to interpret it within a big team's you know shared vision is the fun of plays yes it is uh, and also the thing about you know plays rather than novels is that in novels you have something close to an authorial voice and certainly as we've learnt from reading some of the narrative poems from this period the narrative voice in those poems are very open about their moral beliefs they will tell you this character's a monster this character's bad this character's a slut they're very open about that in plays Everything is channeled through a character's voice. And so you can't really look at, you can't really say, oh, well, the, the narrator didn't mean that, or the writer didn't mean that, because all the char- you only have the character's words to go on. Yeah. You know, we've been talking about the villains here. We've been talking about Joan of Arc and the French, because as is usual, the villains are more interesting than the heroes. But the main English hero in this piece is Talbot, a Talbot who is at first a prisoner of the French, then there's a trade of prisoners. He's let free. He goes to fight with Salisbury. But Talbot, and I'm going to quote something, what is, I think, the main original piece of Shakespeare criticism, the earliest example of someone reviewing Shakespeare. This is from Thomas Nash in 1592, which is, Mm -hmm. how would it have joyed brave Talbot, the terror of the French, who think that after he had lain 200 years in his tomb, he should triumph again on the stage and have his bones new embalmed with the tears of 10,000 spectators at least at several times, who in the tragedian that represents his person imagine they behold him fresh bleeding. Now that is... Sophie, do you concur with that? Did you imagine Talbot fresh bleeding? Did you... did? this representation of a character swell your not very English heart? No. I mean, he made me think this is not a good Henry play. 
This is a good Talbot play, but this is not a good Henry play. Yes, this is... I'd say that perhaps what hurts the Henry VI plays most of all is their titles. Because you think, oh, Henry VI, part one, part two, part three. Oh, these are going to be the same story about the same king. And it's just and because these aren't that famous, they're probably not going to be that good. When you read these plays, oh, they're entirely different from each other. Each play is its own little unique thing. And yes, maybe if this was called Talbot, uh, you know, the, the story of Talbot in France, and the next one was called, oh, Henry VI, and the third one was called, oh, War of the Roses. Maybe then people would like these these plays more because they view them as being, you know, somewhat separate from each other. I definitely think um, Henry Part 2 and Part 3 being hit, renamed Henry Part 1 and 2 would make sense to me just because, you know, one is a direct consequence of the other. So um, even if there isn't much Henry in Part 3, it makes sense because it is the consequences of his decisions basically going, we don't trust you with those decisions anymore. So you're off the play. You're off the, ho- you're off the throne. You are uh, off any forms of decision-making, and that's the play. While this one... Also, Henry's meant to be a six-month-old baby when his dad dies or something. So how long has this, been, how long has this play been going for? in terms of chronological years, just how long. I really want to know the reasoning behind all of these plays being made in the first place. Because I imagine Henry Part Two, the first one being made, kind of, ex- kind of upset a lot of people, especially when Henry was like, oh my god, I just wish I was a fucking peasant. Because, you know, he was a king go- going... I don't want to be king. I am this rightful man on this rightful throne, and I'm so sick of this shit. And I think, um, with, I think with Henry VI, it's one of those things where even, even the history, the chroniclers who were propagandistically on his side, even they had to admit that he wasn't that good of a king. What they Essentially, what they did was, oh, he is... he Yes, he, he was a saint. That's the most you could say about him. He wasn't a good king, but he was a saint. So... I'd say that it wasn't, Shakespeare's vision of him was not uncommon. It wasn't like he was criticizing this king. That was just what most people, even people who were trying to be on his side, would have had to say about him. Mm. Yeah, I don't know, man. But As yeah. you say, Henry VI, I think that these plays, the only reason they are called, this is one of those things where you have to name a history play after the king who was in power at the time. It's such uh, a dumb... It's such a dumb like, system. Yes, like Henry the Fourth is not at all about Henry the Fourth. Those plays are about Henry the Prince Hal, Henry the Fifth. So this play, Henry the Sixth, only shows up in like the fourth act, and even then he's just there to say, "Please stop fighting, everybody." That's all he's there for. This play is mainly about the English Talbot and some other people fighting the French. That's what this story is. Yeah, yeah, but. Uh, I'd like to say that uh, this sort of does depend uh, So, how we view this play. Like, we're doing this play after we've done the other two plays. And those other two plays, they end as a tragedy. That uh, Richard III essentially is saying, oh, I will, my, my brother, my Yorkist brother is now king and I will kill him and I will become king. So it's a tragedy. It's like the bad guy is going to win very soon. 
But in this one, theoretically, this play is about a victory. that The, the English have almost lost France, but oh no, they're going to come and they're going to defeat all the French and they're going to take this place back. When in the very next play, which is Henry VI, part two, we know that they start that play having lost France. They start that play having lost a lot of France. So in this play, it depends on how we look at it. It, it does seem very cheery, very open, very, oh, English victory. Uh, but do we feel that it has any level of, uh, let's say, foreshadowing other than the previous two plays? Well, I won't go so far as to say foreshadowing and maybe call it, you know, um, poetic irony, I guess. Because um, going just by the chronological order in which these plays were made, everyone knows what's going to happen. Henry's going to marry Margaret. Margaret's going to cheat on him. Um, things in his court are going to get worse. Some fucking commoner king is going to go, yeah, I'm the king, yeah, and gets fucking ganked for it, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, until he gets murdered by Richard III. So to me, it feels more like they put Talbot and Joe Novak to keep things interesting while the inevitable while the inevitable collapse of Henry the Sixth Court is looming in the distant future. Yes, I mean, was that there was that quote, which was that Orson Welles quote: "A happy ending very much depends on where you end the story." Oh, and it doesn't fucking help that you know the first, the last quote in the plays is someone going, "Yeah, I don't think this is going to work out." I think this is going to end in a tragedy. It's like that's yes, that's we not end. Yes, we end. We we begin the play with Henry V being dead, so the conqueror of France, he's dead. So already, with things maybe won't turn out well if we start with death. The ending is like, oh, I don't think this will turn out well. So <laughs> it is. Uh, yes, it is a very. Uh, there is a pall of potential defeat throughout this entire play. You know, so we've been talking talking about how Talbot is a, let's say, a very patriotic figure, a very, oh, look at this great guy fighting the French. Uh, let's Now, it, it does sort of feel, the Talbot sections do sort of feel like a, a pre-World War I, you know, war adventure story. Those stories where, you know, war could still be treated as a fun adventure you go on. It does feel like, He's there, this almost swashbuckling hero fighting the French. Oh, yeah, with that cool scene that happens with that French lady, like that was very emblematic of the whole, the heart swelling in patriotism. And But um, we'll get to that when we get to that act, I guess. Act two. The English take back some land in France with the help of Talbot, and Talbot is invited to the Countess of Avernier's castle in a very obvious trap. But when she tries to take him prisoner, he reveals that he has an entire army of soldiers ready to fight her, and she says, please forgive me, he forgives her, and then I assume sexy times happen. And then we have Richard Plantagenet showing up to foreshadow the War of the Roses. Seeming, 
There is a running argument through this play, a running B-plot, where Richard Plantagenet and the Lord of Somerset are having an argument over a never-explained legal technicality, which they both claim they are in the right about, but which we never know what it is. And to make the foreshadowing especially clear, they represent their sides by picking up coloured roses so that the audience can plainly tell that, yes, yes, this is about the War of the Roses. Please notice, audience. And just to make the connection especially clear, immediately after Richard Plantagenet is introduced, he goes to his dying uncle Mortimer, and Mortimer tells Richard that actually, son, no, actually, nephew, you are, you have a genetic genealogical claim to the throne. This doesn't come up again in this play, but it will be very, very important for the next two plays. Okay, Sophie, did I leave anything out? Nope. What do you, we we were talking about Talbot in the previous uh, piece and how he's sort of like a pre World War One war adventure fiction style character. <laughs> so, how did you view the Countess of Avernia's uh, part of this? Because this part, this little conflict, it never shows up again. It is. What happens is the Countess of Avernia says, oh, please, noble knight, come to my house so I may view what a lovely man you are. And then when he comes to this obvious trap, she says, aha, I am going to take you prisoner and kill you. Which he says, no, madame, for you see, I have brought soldiers. And the soldiers come in and she breaks down crying, oh, please, don't do this, don't do this. And he says, I forgive you, my dear lady. <laughs> so what did you, you, were, you said you were going to say something about this. Ah, this, uh, this whole act had a few notes from me that went comedy. Because, you know, in act two, scene one, English, the English are sore losers. They, they diss Joan for being, you know, a witch. Um, and then immediately later, like after a brief pause, the English takes the city. And I was like, is this meant to be funny? Is, is this a joke? Um, it may be sort of setting up the English, or at least Talbot, in contrast to the French, because the French king, uh, Charles, he is defeated by a bloody woman. Whereas in this one, a woman tries to defeat Talbot. No, he puts that woman in her place. So maybe it's meant to make the English seem very manly and virile. I guess. Um, but yeah, no, the scene, Act 2, Scene two's Talbot, um, quote, monologue i guess about the uh fuck about how i'm okay the the whole general conversation between the two is quite cute in that you know she goes wait this is talbot but he is but a babe you know he's so youthful looking he's practically a cherub he must be so easy to is sway is this the scourge of france is this the talbot so much fear abroad that with his name the mothers still their babes? I see report is fabulous and false. I thought I should have seen some Hercules, a second Hector, for his grim aspect and large proportion of his strong-knit limbs. Alas, this is a child, a silly dwarf. It cannot be this weak and riddled shrimp should strike such terror to his enemies. And then he replies, No, no, I am but shadow of myself. You are deceived. My substance is not here. For what you see is but the smallest part and least proportion of humanity. 
I tell you, madam, where the whole frame here, it is of such a spacious, lofty pitch. Your roof were not sufficient to contain it. And she's like, where? And he goes, that will I show you presently. And wins his horn, drum strike up, appeal of ordinance, enter soldiers. How say you, madam? Are you now persuaded that Dalbert is but shadow of himself? These are his substance, sinews, arms, and strength with which he yoketh your rebellious necks, raiseth your cities and subverts your towns, and in a moment makes them desolate. And it's just like, yeah, no, war is not won by a single person. It is won by a legion, a multitude. And, um, and it does see, as, as you know, secret plans go, I think the Countess should have seen this coming. She really should have. Yes. It's like, ah, how I will defeat this tremendous warrior if only he doesn't bring his soldiers. Oh, shit, he's brought his soldiers. This is like, and um, I did also put the note, he is legion here um, for my small and wicked little um, reinterpretation gremlin in my brain. Because Joan of Arc I feel like Joan of Arc's um, portrayal as is she a saint or is she a witch can, is determinate on how far a playwright or a director or even the costume designer leans into certain lines and leans into certain, um, you know, just, just scenes. And I just feel this scene could also be a way to potentially put Talbot as almost a satan satan i won't okay it's not satanic but more of a you know lucifer morning star kind of vibe give him reason to fight give him an army give him lesion and then let's see how he falls for for trying to defeat goodly godly france since you know he does stoke up rebellion in the french yes you could you can imagine how a french audience might present this yeah, um, so that's that's just me going. Oh, that's a that's a potential scene where you can really mess with the iconography and the and the storytelling in general. Um, and that's also kind of why I liked that scene. I didn't really care for the patriotic note, but I did care for the fact that oh, you could twist it a little. I mean, if, uh, to let's in a sense, let's perhaps be fair to uh, you know my attempt to see the best in everything Shakespeare does. Uh, let us uh, say that, yes, I would say that these Talbot sections are incredibly patriotic. They're incredibly, oh, look at our, our virile English soldiers. I would say that in this story, they serve a more cynical note, perhaps, which is that, yes, Talbot and the walls in France, very patriotic, those stupid French just defeat them. But I think it's meant to be set in contrast with what's happening at home. Whereas at home, there is a lot of squabbling among nobles. There is, you know, Gloucester fighting with the Cardinal Winchester, their, their soldiers are fighting each other, and there's also a child king, you know, he's a child, he can't do anything. There's the Richard Plantagenet and his, uh, there's Richard Plantagenet and this foreshadowing of the War of the Roses, that sort of thing. So I think that this Talbot overseas, this, you know, emblem of English glory, the fact that he is killed later on, is perhaps meant to be foreshadowing that, yes, English was good. Now it's very quickly going to go to shit. At home, things are already rotting. The roots are being soaked in blood. Yes. 
insert plant pun. Yeah. Uh. Yes, I will. As in Henry the Sixth, Part Three, I will plant a plantagenet. Gross. That lovely line. So bad. I hate it. So bad. There is. There was an entire like uh, school of Shakespeare criticism just trying to argue away any possible puns in Shakespeare's work. Which no, no, he he did like puns. He liked doing puns. It's like in Macbeth, how Macbeth is always yelling out, "Satan, Satan, S E Y T O N, Satan, Satan, get me my armor." And there's lots of people saying, "Oh, of course, Shakespeare doesn't mean the devil here." But no, he clearly no, he, does mean the devil. No, he straight up means it. That yes. doesn't mean I don't like. That doesn't mean I like the jokes, you know. Yes. I like Shakespeare, he loved the pun. I think there was a, a Samuel Johnson said about Shakespeare. Uh, a pun was Shakespeare's Cleopatra. He would gladly lose the world for it. <laughs> the whole pardon pardon the pun, but phrase sort of showed up post... Um, ah, what was the movement that cared for logic and reason above all? Let's just say the Enlightenment. Yeah, that one. Like, I feel like pardon the pun phrase really came after... The Enlightenment got popular because you know a pun is childish while a this idea that language should state something directly and if you can't state it directly you shouldn't be drawing attention to the ambiguities of language yeah exactly so um I feel like in the spirit of Shakespeare just enjoying the pun it's like give him a break it was pre pre I won't go so far as say revolution but it was it's <sighs> it was the times, okay? It was fine to have puns in your life at that point in time. Let him have them. <laughs> and it's still fine to have puns. I mean, it is still fun to have puns. It just depends on um, how much you want to hurt your friends with them. So we've talked about... Do we have anything else to say about Talbot being held in place by this countess? I mean, action... So, uh, I mean, I, I think I mentioned that I think perhaps sexy times were happening between Talbot and the Countess. Do you think I'm overstating it? Mm, no, it seemed very much like a, almost like a fucking James Bond moment where, you know, he's trounced the lady that tried to trounce him. And now that, you know, he's proved himself more clever than her, she's like, mm, yes, take me, daddy. Ah. That's my favourite line in every James Bond film. Take me, daddy. <laughs> uh, but yeah. Um, I remember I really... that Richard, what was that? What was, who was the second James Bond? No, the third James Bond, Richard Moore? Oh, Roger I Moore. do not know. Roger Moore. He, I think he's, he finally stopped playing Bond when he realised the Bond girl was young enough to be his daughter. Ew. Good on him for, for making that choice. Um... I will say about this act that scene five, where Mortimer and Richard Plantagenet have a history lesson, basically an info dump of, you know, his right to the throne and how he dies off and goes, do it for me. To me, it did feel like the, the scene in um, where Luke is asking Obi-Wan about his father in Star Wars A New Hope. Yes. And it, it should have happened earlier. It should have happened, like, it should have definitely, that scene definitely should have happened before the plucking of the roses, I feel. 
because at least then, um, fired up by his uncle's death and, and his pitiful death in a prison for decades upon decades, and then he goes to the garden where it's beautiful, filled with roses, and there's freedom, and there's these fuckers who put his uncle in jail and took his right to the throne. And then, like, from that feeling of passion and revenge and, you know, then start plucking roses going, this is mine, this is my colour. Um, I, I feel think like... there may be, like, a thematic reason, like, just maybe... I mean, this play might is, I would say, it's a bit slapdashedly plotted. But I would say maybe there is a thematic reason for the ordering of these things, where by putting this before, by putting the, you know, the argument where they pick up roses and they're arguing with each other before this, it's doesn't let, it does foreshadow the War of the Roses, but it doesn't let us be deceived by the reasons of the War of the Roses. Because the argument between Richard and Somerset, we don't know what they're arguing about. They are all, they seem to be arguing of a technicality of law. But it does, I think that the point here is that Shakespeare is trying to say, look, it ultimately doesn't matter what this is about. It doesn't matter what rights there are on any of their side. Uh, it's almost saying that the War of the Roses, yes, you can bring up all these reasons why this guy was right or this guy had the true right to the throne. Ultimately, it's just a conflict. It's people fighting each other. It's people bringing up blood and I think that maybe by putting this before we learn about, you know, the genealogy, by putting the Richard, the, by putting the Richard and Somerset thing, which is foreshadowing the War of the Roses, even though it is not the War of the Roses, it does prime us to think of the War of the Roses as being sort of a pointless thing based on meaningless technicalities of law. Okay. Like, that's a really good way of, like, looking at it, because then I can understand the reasoning why to put that ridiculous argument first. Because it is a ridiculous argument, and especially between nobles who wouldn't really matter whether they were, um, whether it was Plantagenet or York or whatever, because fucking, they're not going to turn king anyway. It doesn't matter whether you're a kingmaker or not. Um, I will say though um, there was a lawyer in that conversation, in that argument going, no I think it was Plantagenet that's king, which makes things a little bit more I, I think to put it like this uh, that I'm saying it's foreshadowing the War of the Roses in this early part, we don't know what they're arguing about it's entirely a coincidence that they're using roses it's not about being king in that, that argument Really? Yes, it's just an incredibly I think my my edition explicitly says we don't know what they're arguing about. They're talking about their right to something, but we have no idea what these people are arguing about. Then that makes it worse. <laughs> no, but I'd say that makes it better because they're having this argument and we have no basis on which to judge the merits of their argument. It's just an argument which seems to be getting close to violence in their case, So, which is like the War of the Roses. It doesn't really matter what the merits are. It's just something that's going to lead to violence. I feel, oh, ah, I feel like if it's going to lead to violence, then you need to know how stupid the argument is in the first place. Like, yeah, oh, so now I'm going to start throwing hands because um, fucking dude bit my thumb at me, quoting a character fucking um show from way in the future. Um, like, that's a... 
that's a dumb way to start an argument and it's a dumb way to die. And I just feel like maybe if you had a reason for just how dumb this argument this was, you would make a better point. Ah! Yes, it is. Uh, I, I'd say that perhaps not being about the dumbness of the argument, maybe about being the irrelevancy of any kind of argument, that civil war, civil unrest can never be justified. doesn't matter what the argument is. Yes, well. Genealogy is worth dying for, baby. Note of genealogy. This, like a lot of Shakespeare's history plays, we get a long uh, passage detailing the intricacies of the genealogy. Most famously, this happens in Henry V. And in all of these plays, whenever these genealogies come up, modern productions, modern productions will always present the genealogy as being hilariously complicated as being something that no one could possibly take seriously because it's so long, drawn out, and boring. Uh, And I say that for a modern audience, yes. But I I think that at least at the time, because this is how your government is decided, it has some level of being interesting to to the audience. It has some level that the audience should take this seriously. Because like, it's like when Donald Trump was elected, suddenly everyone was very interested in how the electoral college worked. Now, maybe in a in a dictatorial country, they wouldn't they would just laugh at this talking about how the electoral college works. But the way that a government works is very important to the people who live under it or under something similar to it. So, yeah. Yeah. And genealogy was especially important because, you know, king kingship was um, ordained by God. So if you were of not of the bloodline that God said, hey, it's yours this is yours, because I said so, then um, being outside of it is a, um, is a slight against God. So genealogy is very important. Yes, and I remember there was a great courses series about Shakespeare's plays, and it was basically saying that every one of, uh, actually, no, I think it was the an Oxford lecture series on Shakespeare, the idea was that in most of Shakespeare's history plays, the argument, the fundamental theme, is the conflict between those who have authority to rule and those who have the ability to rule, which I think is a good judgment of the Henry VI plays and the Richard III plays, and also most of the plays set in history. Yeah, yeah. Although I will point out an argument against that um, in that, well, okay, no, I, I was about to argue for Henry being a perfectly reasonable king. He just was born in the wrong time. If it had been a peaceful England, then he would have ruled perfectly fine because, you know, it was his country. It was his vibe. If it had, if he had been a warlike king, like Richard III, in a very peaceful time, then Henry would have been a shit king, but he wouldn't have. But again, that kind of is just another facet of the authority to rule versus who can actually rule because what kind of place and time you are in is a factor in whether you can rule or not. Like I remember, I think my Shakespeare professor was saying that we have here the thesis, antithesis, synthesis of a good king. So we have Henry VI, he is the perfect ritual king. He does all the religious things. He does all of the I am king, here is my scepter, I am the ritualized image of a king. Whereas the perfect political king, the perfect real politic king is Richard III, except he has none of the ritual importance. No one likes him. He's an awful person. 
So the person who combines the ritual element of the king and the real politic side of the king is Henry V. So Henry V is the ideal Machiavellian, but also ritualized king. I'm going to nod and um, say that's probably a good one because I haven't read Henry the number. Henry V. Yes. Oh, right. He's dead. Yes, he died. <laughs> the first thing we hear. I... Right. Yeah, that one. I'd like it if Henry V began, but starting with the first scene in this one, where it's Henry V in this coffin and saying, I, won- I bet you're wondering how I wound up here. Oh, no! <laughs> Act three. I didn't mention this before, but Winchester, the Cardinal Winchester and the Duke of Gloucester, Duke of Gloucester, who is currently Henry VI, or Regent, essentially, Lord Protector. These people are fighting. They're fighting each other with words, but then their men start fighting each other with rocks and stones. And the first time we see King Henry in this piece is King Henry comes up and says, please stop fighting, please stop fighting. And then let us go back to France, Joan and the French take back Rouen, but then Talbot takes it back. And then the Duke of Burgundy, who had betrayed France to fight for the English, Joan convinces him to come back to the French side. And Talbot, he meets the king, King Henry VI, finally. And King Henry says, good, Mr. Talbot, good Lord Talbot, I'm going to make you a noble. I notice as we go on, my notes get increasingly slight, increasingly less and less, because this is a play where it does feel incredibly episodic. It, uh, it is the French make some gains, the English make some gains, the French make some gains. It's just sort of a back and forth, back and forth. It doesn't... I'd say that this is the first play where I don't feel there's that much to talk about in it. I mean, everything we could have said... We've sort of said already. Yeah. But let's do our best. It is. <laughs> yeah, so. My have... first note says, um, oh, my God, Henry VI finally shows up in Act 3. Well, he shows up as a baby in, like, the Act 1, Scene 1, but, you know, maybe as a prop, not as a character. And we already, we already get a good sense of his character which is as a guy who just doesn't want people fighting around him and who rely, and he's a child here. He's a, you know, he has no power. He really, he, he relies on the power of a king, the authority of a king. So he said, when he sees Gloucester and Winchester fighting each other, so uncles of Gloucester and Winchester, the special watchmen of our English wheel, I would prevail if prayers might prevail to join your hearts in love and amity. Oh, what a scandal is it to our crown that two such noble peers as ye should jar. Believe me, lords, my tender years can tell. Civil dissension is a viperous worm that gnaws the bowels of the Commonwealth. So already he's a character who his only power is the king's word. His only power is being able to say, stop fighting. But at this point, this still has some level of power. It doesn't make Gloucester and Winchester friends, but it does make them stop fighting for now. Yeah. I am sort of glad that this kind of exists in part two, the original, because I did wonder, like, why are you fighting all the goddamn time? Like, why is this a thing? And I still don't really know why this is a thing, 
I do. Is it this scene where um, Winchester's like, oh, I'm being told to shut up by a child. And um, I was like, yes, you, the the king is a far better Christian than you, sir, Mr. Future Cardinal, you fuck. I think um, it's Warwick who says, uh, the bishop, that bishop had a kindly gird. For shame, my lord of Winchester, relent. For what? Shall a child instruct you what to do? Yeah, exactly. And I was like, yay, good. This is a, yes, this is a good thing for Henry to be dealing with as a, as a king who is but six years old or maybe even less so. Uh, there, is, I, I, there is a kind of age where this is, that, that, I, I imagine that there's going to be a cutoff in age where this will be comic and there's going to be an age where this is, oh, the wisdom of a child. Uh, I'm not sure what that age is, but you can't go too young or too old. Ah, uh, yeah. Probably, I mean, the, uh, the, the earliest it can go is four years old, I feel. I'd say that even then, if the child's first words are uh, inferior to none but to his majesty. No, uh, it is. <laughs> oh, how does this discourse affect my soul? Can you, my lord of Winchester, behold my thighs and tears? I don't know why my baby's a lower class, but I, I, do, I do feel that, you know, perhaps, let's say, <laughs> ten, maybe. Why does your baby have a lisp? I... Isn't that the, the basic idea of babies, how people make babies speak? <laughs> oh my god, that's exquisite. But it, I suppose so. But yeah. I remember, um, like, I'm getting to the age where I, I, I say this as a person in his 20s, but I'm getting to the age where I watched lots of uh, Japanese shonen anime and thinking, well, these characters are awfully young to be doing all this. This is, I'm at that age now where I think, oh, 10 years old, you shouldn't be fighting the mafia at 10 years old. <laughs> but where's the fun in that? But anyway, um, I will say in Act 1, scene, uh, sorry, uh, Act 3, Scene 1, at the very end, eggs went all but Exeter. Do I know who Exeter is? No. In but... this play, he just sort of acts as the sort of voice of the choric voice of reason. But yeah, no, exactly. And he goes, ah, we may march in England or in France, not seeing what is likely to ensue. This late dissension grown betwixt the peers burns under faint ashes of forged love and will at last break out into a flame. Which, that Henry born at Monmouth should win all and Henry born at Windsor lose all, which is so plain that Exeter doth wish his days may finish ere that hapless time. This is like, oh, clearly. Exit is clearly going, mm, I wish I could exit out of here before Shakespeare, this play he ends. likes a pun. He likes a pun. <laughs> exit is going, mm, I wish I could make an exit out of this play before it gets bad. It's just like, God damn you, sir. Um, yeah, it's even from the very beginning, four, six, ten, twelve years old, it's, it's not a good time. It is not a good time. It is at the it is at the stage of governmental collapse when you can still pretend, if you want to, that things could go well, maybe can go on as normal, which I imagine is how we all felt during the first stages of COVID, and how yeah. Americans feel every day. <laughs> Sucks to be American in that sense. But yes, before I start uh, causing fires across the internet on our pages. Act two, scene two, act three, fuck, act three, scene two, is more of Joan being Joan. 
does how much does Joan actually win in this play? The idea is that she is meant to be oh the 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 French hope, but she just seems to lose everything she does. She makes a single minor victory and then immediately she's beaten back. Yeah, no, I've, she's very much Team Rocket in that sense, isn't she? I mean, I'm assuming that she she is meow bet- the unnatural thing that does what a person of her kind should not be able to do. <gasps> oh my god, that's so mean. Although it doesn't, it kind of helps that Meowth is probably the smartest of the three in that team. But and I think it also helps that I think Meowth's voice actor was a trans woman, so we have that sort of gendered thing here. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, that's cute. I like that um, coincidence. Anyway, what were we talking about? We're talking um, about Joan of Arc. Yes. <laughs> Meowth distracting us. So this is the one where she goes, hey, Boy, turn out, turn to our side and wins, um, and then loses immediately again. And yes, so she says, "Oh, turn thy edges." So she's speaking to Burgundy. So he's saying, "Burgundy, a French guy who went to the English side, but now she's saying, look on thy country, look on fertile France, as looks the mother on her lowly babe when death doth close his tender dying eyes.'" and see the cities and the towns defaced by wasting ruin of the cruel foe. See, see the pining malady of France, behold the wounds, the most unnatural wounds, with thou thyself has given her woeful breast. So she's trying to shame him, say, be a patriotic Frenchman, please, sir. Have you no shame? Have you at long last lost all sense of decency, sir? I mean, it worked, apparently. Yes. Either she hath bewitched me with her words, or nature makes me suddenly relent. You know, I, I think that this is, and this is a fairly good argument. I mean, the, the notes do, I, when it comes to a play, you, you it's, like, it's like in those Bethesda video games, where if you succeed a speech check, you can make someone change their entire ideology. But um, I say this is a bit more believable than that. Yeah, definitely a bit more believable, especially because, you know, he's... A French and B lives there, and C is probably sick of this shit. But um, I'm I'm just mostly assuming she's been doing a lot of good work for France, like off screen, because we are assuming that Henry has been growing from a baby to, you know, a youth in the time of this play. So you could potentially create costume, you could create makeup to make Joan and the Dauphin look older or wiser um, as the play goes on. Talbot might gain white hairs. I wish there had been more of her deeds being told to Henry, going, yeah, no, she's she's ravaging um, the English colonies in France kind of shit that happened, like, in the previous plays. Yeah, these plays... They do, like, apparently, the the three of these plays take place over 34 years. Do you feel that level of time has passed over the three plays? 34? Oh, is that why Talbot has a son later? Yeah, so this, I'd say that this play takes place in, like, 10 years, maybe, or something like that. I'd say that Shakespeare doesn't really seem to be be that concerned with the passage of time. He really isn't. He should be, a little bit. I think in the, the only two plays where he is at all concerned with, let's say, classical ideas of uh, timekeeping in plays are The Comedy of Errors and The Tempest. 
So the Comedy of Errors takes place in 24 hours, and the Tempest takes place in six hours. So after that, he just said, no, this 10 years pass between the scenes, 10 years pass within a scene. He doesn't seem to care about time passing. 10 years passing within a scene is pretty fucking egregious, though. Yes. I, I think in The Winter's Tale, a character called Time comes out and says, and now let us move time hence. Sir. Sir. How dare you. Ah. <sighs> but yeah, um... Winter's Tale, a time skip which anticipates Naruto Shippuden. <laughs> no. No. Stop. Act 3 really is nothing much, is it? It is. When it comes to these plays, it's like a lot of people when they're There are two ways people explain this play. Either it's Shakespeare's first history play, and as such, oh yes, it's a bit shit because he didn't have practice. Or they explain it's, let's say, lesser quality by saying, he wrote Henry VI Part II first. That was very popular. He said, okay, I'm going to do the next part of the story. He wrote that one, Henry VI Part III. That that was very successful. And then it's like, okay, uh, people want more. Henry VI is dead. Uh, I'll do a prequel. And he just bang together a prequel that, uh, and like a lot of prequels, doesn't really work that well. Yeah. It's just not, it's not a good Henry play. It's just not a good Henry play. What I think maybe we can tell that maybe at the time, I mean, let's put aside the Thomas Nash thing where he's saying how Talbot was so brilliant, that uh, I think that maybe we can tell this wasn't that popular given that it was only, like the Henry VI part two and three, there were a lot of editions of that printed just separately. But Henry VI part one, was only printed in the first folio. So they, it was on, they only brought it back because they were doing complete works. It's, I remember something Osamu Tezuka said. He was, uh, he was doing an introduction for his work called Alabaster. And he was saying, look, if they weren't doing a complete edition of my works, I don't think I would ever allow this to be reprinted. Wow. Osamu, have some, have some confidence in your work, man. I mean, if you read the Alabaster... It's like someone misread the title who misinterpreted a book, but that Ralph Ellison book, Invisible Man. There's the story about racism in America. Whereas the Osamu Tezuka is saying, what if this story about racism in America literally had an invisible man in it? Oh. <laughs> the plot of that story is that um, this guy, you know, he, he's a wrongly, a black guy in America, wrongly in prison for a crime he didn't commit. And he's like, my problems come from the fact that people hate me because of my skin color. So I'll go to this doctor who can make me invisible. Ah, but the doctor can only make his skin invisible. So he goes around and you can just see the muscles and the veins underneath his skin everywhere. And because of this, he becomes a criminal. And then race never shows up in the story. That theme of race is just forgotten as the story goes on. It's now just a conventional crime story. Okay, yeah, well, Sammy, you should you should not have any confidence in that one. Never mind. Yes. Oh my god, sir, sir. That was by the writer of Astro Boy and Kimba the White Lion. For anyone wondering, and a very very long comic um, serialized life of Buddha. Yes, truly a classic. I say this unironically. That is a classic that should be read in the style of any of Dickens' novels. I should read it at all. <laughs> I've read all. I, I've read a good chunk of most of his shit, but not obviously not Alabaster. But anyway, 
Shall we move on to Act Four? <laughs> Certainly. I was, you know, I am timing these sections now, timing how long we talk. And the fact that we have spent, let's say, a good fraction of Act Three talking about the works of Japanese godfather of manga, Osamu Tezuka, should tell you that even we can't make that much of this play. <laughs> Act four. Just a brief summary of this. King Henry is made ruler of France again. Richard and Somerset, Richard Plantagenet and Somerset are still fighting over the thing that we don't know what they're arguing about. But it seems that Richard and Somerset's supporters come to Henry and ask for trial by combat to settle this matter. King Henry tells them to desist. And then we have, back in France, Talbot getting ready to take Bordeaux. But Somerset, seemingly out of his petty hatred of Richard, refuses to send any reinforcements to the battle. And then we have the tragedy of the peace. Talbot and his son face impossible odds. They almost defeat the French, but then they are killed. And I must admit, my notes for this act are even shorter than for Act 3. But... <laughs> Do you feel I left anything out? I mean, not really. It was it was back and forth again. Yes. I'd say that this time, the fact that Talbot and his son were killed, that is, uh, uh, I, were you expecting this? I mean, I imagine that in Shakespeare's time, when these characters were far more well-known, maybe over the previous scenes, there was more of a pall going, oh, these tremendous characters, this tremendous hero, oh, but I know he will die sadly. Uh, but did this come as a surprise, the fact that he and his son died in battle? Well, the son came out of nowhere, so that wasn't really surprising. Um... How can I make this sadder, said Shakespeare to himself. Ah, mm -hmm. little boy, come up here, get killed. <laughs> and I think also, um, because I've been tr trying to figure out who actually shows up in act well not act two um part two i was like okay talbot is too big a name to not show up in part two considering how much he's done for the king so unless he has a sudden weird name change he's gonna die is what i thought yes he is uh yes it's certainly his death could be <laughs> It's like it's like uh, you need to have Boba Fett in these prequel series in some way. Is that a good example? I guess. Yeah, maybe, maybe. I'm. I'm actually. I. I only know Boba Fett's name, but I don't really know what he does. If he's he's just the guy who uh, just a bounty hunter in Star Wars. Does he actually do anything in those movies, or does he, does he just rock up, look cool, and die? He rocks up, Darth Vader says, don't kill them, and then he gets eaten by a Sarlacc pit. Why is he so popular? He just sort of looks cool, and I think in the 90s he was part of a uh, that, video, that Nintendo 64 video game. He was one of the main villains in it. Oh, okay. But yeah, no, I guess, um, if we're going to put it that way, like, since... 
in the opposite direction since he was such a mysterious figure in part in the first original had putting him in the prequel makes sense to try and like keep that hype and mystery and joy alive well in this but in the opposite sense since he didn't show up in part two it seemed a very odd thing to keep him alive in the prequel considering he has no influence on part two in part two if you know what i mean yes and you know how do we you know i feel that perhaps there is a uh, comment being made with talbot with his death is that we are leaving an era where there were english heroes we are we are and i i i think that perhaps if we read somerset you know somerset he refuses to send reinforcements to uh, to Talbot and to Richard as they're fighting the French at Bordeaux. He refuses. And the reason he gives, one of the reasons he gives is that Richard should have asked me directly, which, you know, seems a bit petty. But another reason he gives is, it is too late. I cannot send them now. This exposition was by York and Talbot, too rashly plotted. All our general force might with the sally of the very town be buckled with. The over-daring Talbot had sullied all his gloss of former honour by this unheedful, desperate, wild adventure. York set him on to fight and die in shame. That Talbot dead, great York might bear the name. So essentially Somerset is saying, look, we we can't just be these swashbuckling, rabble-rousing heroes where we just run in and fight with our with the only our adrenaline as our guides. He's saying that no, we, we live I think that maybe Shakespeare is making a comment using this incredibly overdone uh uh using this, you know, incredibly patriotic hero of the English character Talbot just to say that, look, the times of these kinds of people have passed. We live in a perhaps more sober and realpolitik age where we can't rely on heroes like that anymore. I mean, that's a pretty good take. And if if that was actually Shakespeare's intention, then hats off. But it just seems like a really petty way to kill off a character to me. Yes, die, dying when it's through no fault of his own. If Somerset had only sent in more more soldiers, perhaps he could have survived. Yeah. It's like, this reminds me, and I didn't mention this before, but they, they give uh, Talbot many ways such that his defeats are never his fault. Like, the reason why he's prisoner, I think, is because a guy called Sir John Fastolf, not Falstaff, Sir John Fastolf, uh, is such a coward. They mention in this play multiple times that Fastolf is a bloody coward who deserted Talbot, and that's why Talbot failed. It's not Talbot's fault. This guy called Sir John Fastolf retreated, and thereby Talbot was taken a prisoner, or Talbot died. So the play is really trying to make it so that Talbot himself is never at fault for his losses. Can either Captain America be at fault? For the Winter Soldier's crimes, am I am I using a correct reference? I maybe yes, uh, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, I'm, just, I'm just remembering Captain America's Civil War, where the basic plot is that Captain America doesn't want government oversight of their activities. Uh, <laughs> I can imagine that hitting rather differently if it was released during the pandemic. Yeah. But I think even when the, the one time where he loses to Joan, it's because Joan uses magic to remove his strength. So the only way you can beat this guy is either there is a coward on his own side or if literal magic is involved. 
part of me, I kind of wish um, they'd mentioned his first name. Is Talbot's first name ever mentioned? So apparently Lord Talbot is John Talbot, Earl of Shrewsbury. John. Oh, God damn it. I wish it had been George. Well, it's a very boring first name. But beyond that, I wish it had been George because, you know, um, they keep saying for George, you know, George the Dragon Slayer, George the... Yes, goddamn you history for not having a good sense of uh, of echoing. Exactly. How dare. It would be so much more fun. Yeah, but in these plays, uh, in the, as in this play, a lot of the time we contrast the uh, victories abroad. Well, not victories, he dies. Uh, we contrast what happens abroad with at home. And here we still have Somerset and Richard fighting again. and. Once more, we have the king relying on the authority of the king to get them to stop fighting. He says, uh, So, good lord, what madness rules in brain-sick men were for so slight and frivolous a cause. Such factious emulation shall arise. Good cousins, both of York and Somerset, quiet yourselves. I pray, be at peace. And then he says, Ah, then he says, Come hither, you that would be combatants. Henceforth, I charge you. As you love our favour, quite to forget this quarrel and the cause. And you, my lords, remember where we are. In France, amongst a fickle, wavering nation, if they perceive dissension in our looks and with that within ourselves we disagree, how will their grudging stomachs be provoked to willful disobedience and rebel? So he's saying, essentially, look, let, let's, we're fighting a war in France. Let's at least for now... Pretend we are on each other's side. Let's not be fighting each other because that might give the French confidence that they can fight us. I'd say is hey, he's making fairly good arguments here, and also, but still, it is at the point where his kingly authority actually means something. Because yeah, he has grown a little bit older. Um, when I get older, um, fuck, I should not be doing that to myself. I keep distracting myself like this. Um, so he has more authority. He's definitely using more reason to stave off the the arguments because before he was going oh no please don't it hurts so well now it's more of a guys we still have a thing in france can you just like maybe calm your tits just until that's sorted and despite the fact that it's been you know eons decades since it started and just has not really fixed itself in a very long time but then we also have that thing where he said, like he says, so like these two people, Richard and Somerset are fighting, and just to reiterate, they're not fighting about the War of the Roses. These Richard and Somerset, their thing is entirely different. They just so happen to be using roses. But we have uh, Henry, King Henry saying, let me be umpire to this double strife. I see no reason if I wear this rose, and he takes a red rose, that anyone should therefore be suspicious. I'm more inclined to Somerset than York. Uh, so here he's just randomly taking this rose and saying this rose does not matter but then later on Richard says I like it not in that he wears the badge of Somerset so even after Henry says look I'm just picking this up as an example I don't care but Richard is saying oh I hate this guy he's siding against me so it, it is a nice way to you know poetic irony the situation Henry objectively did nothing wrong 
aside from try to just continuously try to broker a peace between the two sides of the cardinal to be and his uncle and it was never going to happen he is not the right king for this time period poor baby it's like i was yeah so i think that's all we can say about act four really yeah it really is it's actually it's just it starts off so okay and then it just sort of wanders off because it's doing its best to hype up part two, I guess, or just try to connect itself to part two. It really struggles to be its own self, this play. I mean, I would say that this play, that all three of the plays are very different from each other, that this one, I said the problems with this one are not that it is too connected with the latter two. It's more that the thing it's doing this sort of war in France, it just sort of does it over and over and over again in such a way without really adding much each time. Yeah, that's true too. Act five. Act five. Almost at the end. We have... The French preparing for battle, Joan of Arc trying to summon demons, failing at that. She gets taken prisoner, put on trial, and ultimately is condemned to death. Separately, we have a political marriage trying to be arranged between King Henry and to a powerful French noblewoman. In the end, that doesn't happen because the Duke of Suffolk, or the Lord of Suffolk, takes a fancy to the rather politically insignificant Margaret of Anjou, and so he wants to make it so that King Henry marries Margaret, so that simultaneously Suffolk can canoodle with Margaret, and also so that via Margaret he can have influence on the king. So already we have French-English rule in France being somewhat undermined. I should also note that King Henry becomes essentially the ruler of France, and Charles agrees to be viceroy. This does not last long, as the next play will tell us, but not right now. So, have I missed anything? Nope. Nope, I don't think so. Although, is this guy, is this Suffolk the same Suffolk um, in part two? Yes, yes. I really want to refuse to believe that. Why? What change? Is he here? Did you find him to be scintillating in this one? I refuse to believe that Margaret will choose to to follow this dum-dum. You didn't find their flirtations to be deeply, deeply erotic. Dum-dum, da-dum-dum-dum-da-dum-da-dum-da-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum. Dum-da-dum-da-dum-dum. Yeah, the flirtation scene does really play out like a... Like a bit of a comedy. Well, I don't think I've seen Shakespeare use asides like this before, where the asides are usually time stands still and they turn to the audience and say something. In this one, the other characters do notice that the guy's lost in thought. Like, what is he, Margaret saying? Keeps on talking to himself. He keeps on muttering to himself. What's going on here? And, and the thing is, he does it back. It's so dumb. It's so dumb. I hate it. I hate it. I mean, did you did you find anything in this? Did you <laughs> did you? I mean, do, do you, how much do you think that Margaret is playing along with the seduction? I truly want to believe that there was no playing along, just 
absolute straight-faced confusion going, who is this man? What is this man? What is, I, can I go home? It just, it had the vibe of why is this man trying to keep making ransom of, of me? And why is he refusing to make ransom of me? Just let me go home. This fucking weirdo. It's, it's like she said, he says to her, so yet if this servile usage once offended, go and be free again as Suffolk's friend. And then the stage direction says she is going. Oh, stay. Don't go. Please. No. I, I think the scene definitely can and is played for comedy, which maybe that's an ill-judged thing to do, given what it's meant to be doing, setting up the next play. It's so bad. And, it's so, and also... I mean, I found it somewhat charming. Maybe I can only say that as a man uh, who has never had to flirt. Uh, this is... I don't say that to say that I, I, can, get, I can get pussy without flirting. I mean, <laughs> I mean that purely as I don't do... I have no interest in any of that stuff. So maybe as someone who is outside of this entire thing, I can view this as charming. But you, as someone who has been in the trenches, as they say, maybe it is deeply, deeply uh, um, cringeworthy, Sophie. <laughs> I mean, also, I've been monogamous for over a decade, so maybe I'm, I've been away from the trenches, and this is this kind of flirting is, in fact, perfectly normal, but ugh, it just seems so exceptionally dumb. And um, it, doesn't, it doesn't fit the character that I have of Margaret in my head, because in Act 2, well, correction, Part 2, in Part 2, she seemed to enter this marriage with in good faith and as the years went by and as um henry proved to be a bit of a, a soft sock um she was like you know what i will um lean into this man who makes me feel like a woman and this person that she is trading remarks with does not fit that kind of person that Margaret would um, be interested in. Like, if it was the Earl of Suffolk's son, and that, like, Earl of Suffolk was like, mm, yeah, Margaret, let's, let's get it on, baby. And she's like, oh, no, what a weirdo. And um, Earl of Suffolk's son was like, hey, I'm sorry about my dad. He is a fucking weirdo. And then from there, Margaret's like, yeah, but also my husband's a fucking weirdo, it turns out. And then they start going, yeah, but we can we can hate on our weirdos together. It would make sense to me. But this as an origin of Margaret's affairs in part two is an insult to to Margaret. Uh, I hate yes, it. and it's like Shakespeare did have some ground in which to to be inventive and to be perhaps a bit more compelling with this part, given that he seems to have made it up. He seems to have made up the entire affair between Suffolk and Margaret. So it's not like he was constrained by history here. Terrible. But, you know, the, in terms of the narrative, what is important about this is that Suffolk essentially lobbies the king to marry Margaret, even though Margaret is politically not very important. Marrying her won't solidify any control over France. And that at the beginning of this act, uh, Henry was meant to be marrying a... Uh, let's say, a more powerful woman, uh, a more influential woman. Whereas at the end of this, his advisors are saying, Henry, what are you doing? Why are you marrying this woman? And I think maybe it's meant to get across some of the weakness of King Henry, you know, both being a child, but essentially 
he is he is being by Suffolk argued in to being cuckolded. I feel that that is meant to say that at the heart of this new era of French politics in France, we have a king who is being secretly cuckolded. That is, our king is a bit weak, essentially. He's weak enough. He's already quite limp as... He's already just a limp person. Uh, he's a saint. He's a person that doesn't like fighting in in an era that kind of requires a lot of war and steadfastness in civil unrest. So I don't see why it was necessary to add um, this as well. It also really undermines Margaret as a character. Like this is just generally this scene feels like a disservice both to Margaret and the play itself because it sort of, it takes itself quite seriously. And then it just has this little Looney Tunesy conversation. You know, it's not as bad as um, duck season, rabbit season, duck season, rabbit season, rabbit season, duck season, fire, but it's it's quite close. Yes, they do, uh, they do cut the tension by starting in at a comedy. Don't like it. Don't like it. But moving on to Joan of Arc, powerful woman now brought low by the virile English. She has brought the court. She is going to be, uh, you know. And this scene, it is, it definitely does seem like it's trying to humiliate her. It is trying to say, look at this worthless woman. Because before, in previous scenes, she is, you know, standing tall. I am a powerful woman. But here, We're saying, here's your father. He's a goddamn shepherd. And she's saying, no, 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 no. I'm secretly of noble blood. I am secretly noble born. And she's saying, get out of here, you stupid shepherd, to her own father. And then we have her, um, either she is saying that you cannot kill a virgin. It's like, oh, don't worry. We're going to kill you as a virgin. It's like, oh, no, actually, I'm pregnant. Please uh, don't kill. Please don't kill me. I'm pregnant. And so we have her facing death without any dignity whatsoever, which, you know, maybe it's realistic, certainly. People don't want to die, and so making every attempt you can to stay alive might be worth something. But it is uh, in the eyes of an English audience, perhaps, who aren't prepared to uh, give her the benefit of the doubt. It is trying to present her as being incredibly uh, mewling and incredibly weak at this point. Yeah. I would like to, before getting into the scene, explore the parts where she called for some friends and it didn't work out. Yeah, she does. Yes, like like in Henry VI Part Two, demons exist in this story. In these stories, people can summon demons. They're not very helpful, but demons objectively exist. Joan of Arc tries to summon a, an army of demons. She does summon an army of demons. But they refuse to help her, and they walk away. And she, and so it's it's a weird thing just to have for no reason in this narrative. For me, um, this is this scene was where my uh, reinterpretation goblin decided to get a little excited because um, <coughs> you know how she <coughs> sorry. <coughs> I'll leave all those coughs in. Uh, thank you. Appreciate it. <laughs> I definitely have COVID. Um, <laughs> fuck. I should not be making these jokes. Um, anyway, the you know how, like, 
angels usually go be not afraid because they are generally terrifying to look upon. And Joan of Arc has so far been consistently insisting that she comes with God's blessing. You know, Mother Mary helped her, that kind of shit. Um, so part of me wonders if you could make a scene where she actually has summoned angels because she never uses the words demons or devils or whatever she just says uses the words friends i think the uh, in uh, if you listen to this in audio in my version this stage direction says enter fiends Ooh. yeah so she says so she herself calls them ye choice spirits so she maybe well maybe she is of the opinion that they are Helpers are substitutes under the lordly monarch of the north. Appeared and aid me in this enterprise. So lordly monarch of the north. Apparently this means Lucifer. So in Isaiah it says, I will climb into heaven and exalt my throne above beside the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation toward the north. So apparently she does know she is asking for help from demons. Aww. Because I kind of... It would have been fun to play with, you know, fiends sort of looking, angels looking like yes. demons because they're terrifying. And how she basically goes and she summons them and then they walk and speak not, oh, hold me not with sounds overlong where I was, want to feed you with my blood, I'll lop a member off and give it to you in earnest of further benefits so you do condescend to help me now. And like, um, you know. I do wonder is- if, uh, like, even in, like, so, uh, given that Shakespeare is writing from an English perspective and those bloody French, I do, even like a century later, the English has said, oh, no, Joan was quite a good person. I wonder if he was writing a bit later with a bit more historical hindsight, he might have done something like you're suggesting that this is a valorous woman. Because there's a lot of ways you could play with that line. Like, this is my blood given unto you. Um, in terms of, you know, I've given you my blood, but if you need more, like, I a hand like dig a nail in there it's like no hope to have redress my body shall pay recompense if you will grant my suit they shake their heads and then um then take my soul and my body soul and all before that england give the french the foil and i just feel like if she had believed in her faith more if she had been more commanding of the potentially angels she might have been saved kind of thing the uh, I was reading this article where it's like it's an article by Tricomi, A. H. Tricomi, I don't think I pronounced that right, called Joan La Pucelle and the Inverted Saints play in Henry the Sixth, Part One, where this does Shakespeare's treatment of her in these last scenes does certainly hew close to the English anti-saint narrative. So Protestant England writing about Catholic saints, there was a way these stories went, which was that at the very end, these Characters must be humiliated. They must be shown to be entire, either in league with the devil or just conmen. They must be humiliated. They must be belittled. And this very much is what happens to Joan. She is not allowed any dignity at her death. Uh, even if it doesn't seem to hold close to how she acts in the rest of the play, no, this is what the audience wants and this is what the genre demands. Uh, how did you feel about her trial scene? <laughs> yeah, that was depressing. <laughs> So I can imagine the Marquis de Sade reading this and thinking, hmm, this is something I can do later on. No, no! <laughs> there was that thing which um, Angela Carter said, which was the Marquis de Sade was the first feminist novelist. 
because because of his sexual perversions, he liked to look directly at the evil society does to women. I mean, yeah, but that doesn't make him good. (laughs) That is a spicy take. (laughs) That doesn't make him good. What are you talking about? God damn it. But anyway. But fundamentally, Joan, she is humiliated, she is condemned to death, and she is going to be burned to death. Is Yes, so this young girl killed finally. English power seems to be on the up and up. Charles, uh, the King of France, reluctantly he agrees to be Viceroy, and it seems like the English have won the day. But as we know, having read the other two plays, this is the beginning of the end. Uh, But it ends with Suffolk. Suffolk saying... Thus Suffolk hath prevailed, and thus he goes, as did the youthful Paris once to Greece, with hope to find the like event in love, but prosper better than the Trojan did. Margaret shall now be queen and rule the king, but I will rule both her, the king, and realm. Foreshadowing. Foreshadowing. <laughs> the post credits <laughs> Didn't he fucking die very, like, quite sadly? He died by a pirate killing him in Act 4 of uh, Henry VI, Part 2. So he yeah. does. He says, I hope to prosper better than the Trojan did. So that's another bit of foreshadowing. He's like, I'll do exactly what this uh, ancient guy did, but, you know, I won't die like him. I can do it better. I did it better. No. No, sir. No, you did not. You did pretty shit, actually. And so that was that. That was that. This was this. That was Henry the Sixth, Part One, and it does appear that next time we are going to be doing Richard the Third. How does it feel, Sophie? Almost a year in, that we are finally going to get to one of Shakespeare's actually acknowledged masterpieces. I mean, it's actually been quite fun reading the un- unknown. Well, not unknown, but just lesser known works, just to really see where he came from and how how he's like improved. Yes, like I would say that you know throughout this entire podcast, I usually have been trying to find excuses for the things other people don't like in his early plays, trying to find the best in them. I would say that if Shakespeare had died of plague at this point, uh, we would not be having this podcast. No, Shakespeare would not be famous enough for us to have heard of these old plays. If Absolutely. he had written nothing after this point. I mean, he, he might have been known for his, mostly for his plays and nothing much else. N- not plays, poems, poems. Like Rape of Lucrece. Yes, this would be... But even then, I think this would be something like people who sort of liked uh, the, the master of English playwriting, Christopher Marlowe, as he probably would have been if Shakespeare had died at that point. Uh, um, <laughs> I think that, yes, we would say here is, if you like Christopher Marlowe, here are some poems by one of his friends. Just like how women doing it with everybody else. Yeah. So we have, so let me just uh, check if I have anything else. Uh Ah, so here's one of the, here's an old review of this play by Jared Langbane from 1691. He says that, This play may be contrary to the strict rules of dramatic poetry, 
Yet it must be owned, even by Mr. Dryden himself, that this picture in miniature has many features which excel even several of his more exact strokes of symmetry and proportion. That's a very measured review of this work. Uh Mm. It's got some good parts in this uh, tableau of scenes. Yes. Ah, oh, so, uh, but you know, in 1766, we have a guy called George Stevenson saying, "There is perhaps sufficient evidence that the plays in question, unequal as they may be to the rest, were written by Shakespeare." But the reason generally given for publishing the less correct pieces of an author, that it affords a more impartial view of a man's talents or way of thinking than when we only see him in form and prepared for our reception, is not enough to condemn an editor who thinks and practices otherwise. For what is all this to show but that every man is more dull at one time than another, a fact which the world would have easily admitted without asking any proofs in its support that might be destructive to an author's reputation? So he's saying, yes, I I don't think we should condemn an editor to include this piece of shit in his collected works. (laughs) We can take for granted that, yes, of course, Shakespeare wasn't always a genius, but we don't have to show people. I mean, I think we should. We 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 gotta we gotta keep posthumously picked down a little bit on occasion, just in case. But now let us talk about one thing that you did not like in this play, Sophie. One thing I did not like in this play? That scene, that fucking scene between Margaret and Suffolk. That was the most insufferable one by far. Like a nineteen thirties flirtation scene. Garbage. And what I didn't like was that I really did feel that uh, Joan of Arc could have had a bit more made of her. Could have been a bit more intimidating or a bit more, you know, I, I'd say that actually the French side in general. There was that thing in Dan Olson's video that the thing about propaganda is that it really doesn't work for narrative purposes because the, the hero can't be allowed to lose that much in propaganda which is really against the rules of conflict and conflict escalation. I feel that if Shakespeare was writing a few decades after the fact, maybe he could have made the French a bit more intimidating. As indeed, I think he did in um, Henry V, but I haven't read that in a while, so maybe I'm lying there. But uh, yes, make the French a bit more strong, Willie. And, Sophie, yes, one thing you did like, Ah, what did I like about this play? I mean, that's the Talbot scene where he says, aye, this is Talbot, and just points at his army. was quite a fun scene to imagine. And um, there were a few, like, monologues in there, even if they were mostly, you know, dreary little, oh, no, this just looks bad. This looks bad in the future. Foreshadowing, foreshadowing, foreshadowing. Um, in that sense, like some of them were good monologues, but that that interaction was quite fun. And when it comes to what I liked, I liked the what did I like? <laughs> uh, it was on the oh yes, uh-huh. what I liked was the Richard Plantagenet Somerset scenes, and this may be just my, based on my interpretation of that, but I do like how in the middle of this play we just have 
two characters arguing over something we have no idea what they're arguing about. They are arguing over a mere technicality of law that we have no way to judge in something that is clearly meant to be a version of the War of the Roses in miniature. So I like that the theme, essentially, of this is it's foreshadowing that ultimately the merits on either side of the War of the Roses don't matter. This is just two people fighting each other, two people bickering and trying to get the upper hand. And it does not matter what the fundamental cause of it is. This is just dissension. Yeah. But... Still annoyed that it doesn't... No argument without a point to argue is... Shit, I, mm, I, I guess that's the point, but, you know, not, it, mm, mm, don't like it, don't like it. That's another thing I didn't like that about this play, pointlessness. Would you say this is the worst play we've read of his so far? I mean, putting aside the, uh, the, uh, the obvious elements of Taming of the Shrew that might morally put it below this, but uh, <laughs> is this the worst play we've done so far? Yeah, I can honestly say I enjoy Taming of the Shrew more. Yeah, so it had a better bit of uh, BDSM than this one. <laughs> in this one it is male sub femdom with Joan and Charles and that one in that one it was quite the opposite yes uh, that is definitely a hot take that is a hot spicy take if only those two couples were in the same play yes yes they meet at a convention ah. oh I better go on archive of our own and type this up wait no <laughs> Thank you for listening to Shakespeare and Powell. A list of references to the work cited in today's episode can be found in the episode description. The opening, interstitial, and closing music of this podcast is a public domain recording of Henry Purcell's The Fairy Queen, sourced from newsopen.org. Thank you for listening.